co-hosts log the missing episodes podcast episode 6 day 13 i am all alone now my podcast co-host indeed my friend is gone the future seems bleak and to think this mission this mission to the unknown started with such optimism. You know, Paul, I think we should mm-hmm. do something special for the for episode six. Uh, episode T stroke A, I think you mean. You just made that up. <laughs> it's either that or the missing episodes podcast cutaway, Tim. Yeah, so for episode six, I thought it was about time we recovered a missing episode of our own. Oh, well, now there's an idea. But I've been around the charity shops and a couple of school fates, and I've drawn a blank, surprisingly. Have you got any ideas? Don't say Ethiopia. Again. Well, Tim, actually, as you know, I do like to think outside the box. (laughs) Hold on to your hats. Just listen to this. We build a rocket fly into space, uh, track down decades-old television signals, and record them onto uh, Betamax. Yeah? You're off your rocker. I've done the sums. If we get a shift on, we can overtake Marco Polo somewhere outside Beetlejuice. Mm. And that was how we ended up embarking on the first Doctor Who podcast expedition to outer space. At first, all went well. But by day five, tempers were starting to fray. <sighs> you can't claim to understand the macro terror until you admit that the rough and tumble scene is frippery. It's not! It's integral to the plot and thematically resonant to boot! It can be both! On day ten, a heated dispute broke out over whether Wheel in Space was sold to Kaduna or Lagos. Well, Phil says. Phil says. Phil says. There was only one thing for it. We decided to touch down on the nearest planet to allow tempers to cool. Paul stepped outside, slammed the door like a child, and that was the last I saw of him. Must be getting on for three days. I remember now. I must. Ah, here he is. Ready to forgive and forget, old chap. Come on, mucker. Come and sit down with me and record a podcast. I must kill... No, hang on, Paul. What are you doing with that massive frying pan? Here, give it here. We'll need that for supper. I must kill... Must do what? You're always so bloody insistent all the time. I suppose it's about time the listeners found out what a bloody tyrant you really are. Where have you gone now? And why is there an eight-foot cotton plant in our spaceship? Paul? Uh, it's me. Huh? What are you talking about, eight-foot cotton plant? Are you higher then? Um... No. It's all, uh, fine. <laughs> uh, shall we record? Oh, yes, let's. Oh, dear, I've just pricked myself on something hanging off your, um, jumper. Ah, well.
and welcome to episode 6 of the Doctor Who Missing Episodes podcast. You join us on the planet Kemble, where we'll be discussing the one and only one-part Dalek story, Mission to the Unknown, in case you hadn't already guessed. My name's Paul, and I'm joined by Tim. Hello! Are you feeling better now, Paul? <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. I just uh, cough up the odd furball now and then. Paul, before we kick off properly, can we just run through a couple of cock-ups we've made in previous episodes? Is this going to be a regular feature? Bloody hope not. Yeah, let's do it then. Well, one kindly soul has been in touch to point out that during the Reign of Terror review, I suggested that the fact that half the episodes were zoomed in was a result of it being a suppressed field copy. Mm. It's not. Apparently it's simply due to the whim of the telerecording operator. And what whimsical fellows they were. Anything else? Well, it occurs to me that... You once said that the Crusade was the last historical to feature sort of big-name, recorded historical characters. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And, and then you went to all the trouble of recording and inserting a bit where you corrected me, yeah? Pointing out that the last historical to feature big-name characters from recorded history was, in fact... The Massacre. Only we're still wrong, because we forgot the gunfighters. Bucker. And finally, last episode, I said that Maureen O'Brien was contracted for many more episodes after the Myth Makers. And she wasn't. Apparently not. But in my defence, the particular resource I was consulting changed its mind within a couple of pages. Well, that'll teach you to try and be factual. Is that all the mayor culpers? Yes. Unless I'm wrong about that as well. Well, with the errata cutaway complete, we're back to our main theme. Last October, the University of Central Lancashire released their brilliant recreation of Mission to the Unknown, and the man behind it, Andrew Ireland, appeared on an excellent interview on the very excellent Something Who podcast. He did, and it was. And Richard also did a terrific interview with Doctor Who author Jack Rayner about Mission to the Unknown, which contained a delightful analysis of the delegates, and then a full review of the episode itself. They did, and it was. So, listeners, we're going to encourage you to go and listen to those now. Have you listened? Have you? The keen observer will note that Paul and I also appeared on those, so we thought that our podcast here could be a companion piece. That's right. This is the very definition of required listening. Anyway, thankfully the lovely Andrew Island has agreed to save us from ourselves on this podcast, so should we get him out of his cryo-chamber? Let's. Now we're joined by Andrew Ireland from the University of Central Lancashire, who was the director and producer and creative force behind the marvellous recreation from 2019. Hi, Andrew. Hello. That's very kind of you to say. It's good to be here. Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great to have you on. So what we'll do is the normal sort of running order. We will discuss a bit of the background about Mission to the Unknown, and then we'll see if there's anything to say about the characters and the characterization and then we'll give our thoughts on the piece and then we'll we'll chat to you andrew a little bit about your recollections from last year if that's okay that's fine okay so mission to the unknown is the it's the second 
serial of uh, the second story of season three it was the last thing to be produced in the second production block and it's verity lambert's last production even though john wiles may have had more of a hand in the production element i don't suppose there's anything we can discern about the different producers from this one item is there no, I mean, in many ways, it's the same as with Galaxy 4. Mm. The feel of the story is very, it seems very season one and two to me, so you can tell it's a hangover from various time. But whether or not Wiles would have wanted to have more of a say in it because he knew he was going to be producing Dalek's master plan, you'd think he would. But there's not a lot to influences, though. We, we would normally discern these influences, perhaps, by how the lead characters are used, and we don't have the lead characters. So the reason we have this episode is that Planet of Giants was edited down from four episodes to three episodes. I was thinking about that. That's, I'm quite mystified and impressed by that, in that this new-ish director, Douglas Camfield, comes in, and he's making big decisions. He would have had to get permission, but with the integrity of that story at heart, I wonder why other stories didn't receive the same treatment. Not, you know, not naming names, but the censorites could have hmm. lost a bit, couldn't it? Well, you you do wonder, I suppose, at what point they made the decision, because I'm not sure when they decided to make it three episodes, not four. I mm. assume they filmed it all to make it into a four-parter. Oh, definitely. You wonder what extent the directors actually had an input into the post-production process, because in mm. a sense they're hired, I suppose, to do the rehearsal and then the production, Yeah. which is a week per episode, as we all know, and then possibly but don't have much input after that um hmm. not sure actually it's quite an interesting point oh, the other thing to bear in mind is that there were two directors on planet giants mervyn pinfield did the first two episodes and douglas camfield did three and four so if yeah, if there was any chance that douglas would have that dougie would have spotted the problems that earlier on even if as a rookie director there was any chance he could have raised them he he may well not have been involved because that sort of that yeah. rolling weekly production line of Doctor Who in those days, where the demarcation between the stories wasn't quite as clear. Yeah, but it's not a Planet of Giants podcast, so... <laughs> but talking of that rolling on, we've had this missing episode rolling on for, you know, close to two years now, and somebody's spotted it as a gap at the, in the bottom line on the accounts or something, and so we yeah. get this. Well, at some point, yeah, Sidney Newman grants an extra episode to be made and they decide to produce a effectively a trailer for the upcoming already programmed in 12-part Dalek story. I think there would have been a saving on cast members in that I believe William Hartnell was contracted would have been contracted anyway but Peter Purvis and uh, Maureen O'Brien weren't Uh, so they went for this unprecedented production with with no regulars. This was conceived very much in the wake of Dalek Mania, or in the midst of Dalek Mania. This was produced in June 65, and I think there had been a lot of publicity around the forthcoming Dalek movie, Doctor Who and the Daleks. And this was eventually shown in the October. So it makes perfect sense for a Dalek project, an extra additional Dalek episode to to be made, I guess. And Terry Nation at this point would be eyeing up the possibility of the Daleks breaking America. What I find interesting here about the timelines, and I haven't been able to quite get my head around it, is whether or not... Well, yes, I'm, I think we can be sure in Terry's own, Terry Nation's own head he was thinking about taking the Daleks out of Doctor Who and using them Yeah. in America. But whether he'd told the BBC that 
I don't know whether he was in. Is this before he started discussing the possibility of springboarding it? Because of course he was originally going to try and get the Beavis involved with this Dalek spin-off, wasn't he? So well, I do find it very interesting whether he was thinking that at the point the mission was being commissioned, whether he sort of pushed in that direction, or possibly if it's the complete opposite. We can but speculate. However, thanks to the excellent Dalek sixty-three eighty-eight video, which was um, <laughs> which came to my rescue earlier in the week, the first meeting in anger about a possible Dalek spin-off was during was when the gunfighters ah. was going out. Okay, right. But Nation would have been <laughs> raking in the money from toys and from. Uh, I don't know how the finances worked with the first film, but he would have been seeing some money from that. So I imagine he'd be absolutely looking to exploit his his creation further. Yes, so we can't get it entirely ironed out, but um, we know it's certainly in the air because some of the characters from Dalek's Master Plan lived on into mm. his spin-off. But we'll get to that, won't we? And <laughs> what do you what do you two make of the the James Bond stuff? I guess it was just very much of its time. I think, you know, um, Terry Nation was writing a lot, wasn't he, for uh, different TV uh, mm. programs, you know, along, along those sorts of lines, I guess, back in those days. And his scripts are always quite ambitious anyway, you know, pushing Doctor Who uh, quite far. So I, I think it was just to be expected. Uh, I, I assume at that point, you know, the whole uh, license to kill thing was quite a big you know cultural sort of reference even even then i'm assuming i found myself spending way too much time thinking about this back in october when we recorded the other podcast <laughs> i'd been thinking about it way too much and i've been thinking about it more there's still the question of whether the child audience of 1965 would be aware of it bond hadn't been on the tv they wouldn't have been able to go to the pictures so it's whether they would have read the books but it's sort of useful in the plot, isn't it? And I wonder which came first. Because Corey had just killed Jeff Garvey, and he needs a way to explain that to uh, the other character. Lowry. So the licensed... <laughs> Thank you. Three characters. <laughs> it's only three names I we know, have to remember. I am used to some names. But he had to explain that to uh, the other character in a way that made sense. And so it, it does serve a purpose in the plot for him to say license to kill. It is a bit trite, I suppose. It's a one line to explain that away, but on the other hand, it then sort of informs the character, doesn't it? it you, you then have that in mind as you're watching the rest of the story. And possibly gave Edward D'Souza um, some, you know, minor cues on how to, play, how to approach it. It does. And he is very James Bondy at first, but you never see James Bond panicking like... Corey does no. well at the end. I guess if you're trying to tell a story in 25 minutes and you've got to you've got to tell the plot and you've also got mm. to introduce characters, you have to do quite a few short shorthand yeah. techniques. And I guess one of them is just to say, "I'm a special security service agent, licensed to kill," and then in a way, everyone sort of gets it. You don't need any more backstory. Yeah. There's nothing else there, is there? He's much better at delivering exposition than James Bond, isn't he? He's very talkative. Mark Corey, <laughs> handily. Yes. I haven't told anyone else this. I don't know why I'm telling you now. But <laughs> it's just the way things were going. Yeah. And then we've got, we've got a few Terry Nation favourites, or what would become favourites in there, haven't we? Man-eating plants for the Second Nation <laughs> story running. Uh, jungle setting. Daleks in the jungle. I mean, it's brilliant, isn't it? Well, you could do it in the 1960s because you can create your jungle with a, a flat floor in a TV studio, which is perfect for Daleks to go over it. 
I want to talk to you about that in a while, if that's all right. That's fine. <laughs> not in a not in a cutting you off way, but in a trailer <laughs> for conversation Ooh. down the line. Continuity with Dalek's master plan. Are there any issues that we should be concerned about, or that stick out, or that the audience at the time might have been aware of? I say that because when I was a youth and I had my first impression of Mission to the Unknown, I I used to turn my nose up at, at it a little bit. Because there wasn't the continuity of the alien delegates. There wasn't the cast members in there. And, and for that reason, it's been sort of neglected in my affections over the years. Well, there is the, as you say, uh, the delegates being recast and looking a bit different. That could have been overcome quite easily, couldn't it? Yeah. But I guess in those days, in a way, they never thought that people would watch these things again. Yes. So again, yeah. it's a bit like, well, here are some characters that weren't really speaking anyway, apart from saying agreed, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they look roughly the same. Um, so that's probably okay. Something which I always thought was very interesting, though, is is uh, Corey ends up being exterminated at the end of Mission to Unknown. And he's next to his distress rocket and he's holding yes. this tape recorder with a tape in it. And I still don't quite understand what happens to him or the distress rocket. I know the Doctor finds the tape. Does the Doctor find the tape in the tape recorder or just the tape? And where's the distress rocket (laughs) and where's Corey's body? Do we not know? Because I've just watched for the first time through the recon through from, well, your version of Mission into the uh, Loose Cannon Daleks Master Plan. And they've they've, um, mocked up a very impressive Mark Corey skeleton. I was assuming that was based on some sort of evidence that, that existed in the original version, but well, possibly. I, I just, I'm just not sure because it would, it's not referenced in the soundtrack, is it? No. So either it's just a visual, and the Doctor doesn't say, "Oh, what's happened to this poor fellow?" It's just interesting. I think the lack of continuity is just to make things simpler because anything they'd, that it may have been a prerequisite they gave to Terry Nation, but any, you know, the more ongoing elements that he introduced here the harder it would be to bring them back five weeks later but mm. i do wonder in terms of the storytelling if it would have made more sense if mark corey had survived and been taken the brett vian part because at the opening <laughs> dalek's master plan <laughs> is very sudden we're in media res with the brigadier and brian Kant, <laughs> and that could easily have been <laughs> <laughs> to let you know two people have been in hiding for the previous four weeks you know, assuming that the Kitty Winkles could remember them for that long, they'd be on tenders wondering what happened to these new, new lead characters. So um, I think it could have gone either way. That leads me on to another point. Does it work as a trailer? I mean, my contention would be that it absolutely works as a trailer in itself. It really gets the 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 juices pumping, the blood the blood pumping, ready for a big Dalek 12-parter to come up. I think that absolutely does the job. But when the story, this story is reintroduced into DMP, it's absolutely redundant. Yes, it is. <laughs> so you're saying it works... Well, it, there are three ways to judge it. I mean, it works... I would say it works in itself as a 25-minute little vignette. And it mm. works as a trailer to whet the appetite. Does it work yes. as one of the 13 episodes of the larger story? No, but that's the, almost the one way in which nobody's ever considered it. Nobody's ever been able to sit down and watch um, all of them together. No, that's true. Well, you know, again, we need Ian Levine or Jan on to tell us whether they spotted these inconsistencies, but, um, but they're not here. Well, it's not an inconsistency <laughs> as such. It's just that when the tape is found in the jungle, 
the whole point of the tape was to warn the Earth that the Daleks were coming. Yes. But they already know the Daleks are there because uh, the Brigadier, sorry, uh, Brett Vion, is there in the jungle, aware of the Daleks, and knows all about the plan anyway. Yes, he's discovered the Daleks. <laughs> the Doctor turns up and then discovers the Daleks. <laughs> yeah. So it's not the, the best-kept secret. No, it's, it's mildly redundant, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. That that the, the watching the tape um, fall from Mark Corey's hand at the end of Mission to Unknown, it just reminds me of that. Um, does anyone remember in Jurassic Park where um, the bloke who's trying to smuggle the di- the dinosaur embryos yes. off the island, he's killed and he falls to the ground and the and the canister of embryos falls out of his hand. Yes. And we all think that's what the sequel's going to be about. Obviously, Jurassic Park Two is going to be it's, the <laughs> camera lingers on it for so long. You just think this is going to be really important now because it never comes back ever again. Well, not not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Jurassic Park Nine. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Jurassic World yes. 9. <laughs> Fantastic. Maybe it depends when Terranation was actually commissioned to write the Dalek Master Plan and when did they decide to make this special extra episode? Because possibly he was, was already writing his plot and then they said, we need another one, uh, a one to go at the beginning. So he kind yep. of just picked up some of his ideas and kind of like reconstituted them into some kind of like, you know, extra prequel type episodes i think that's a very good thought yes that's often the problem with prequels isn't it that they're redundant because the reason they weren't written in the first place people have said that yes. for everything from the phantom menace to henry the henry the sixth part one there there wasn't a story that the uh, writer wanted to tell originally so when you go back and do it later nobody's heart's ever really in it i think what mission to unknown does is like um it's like an, uh what's it called an aperitif is that what it's called? <laughs> An appetizer. An appetizer, yeah. A, it gives you a soup son of the flavour yes, of the main course. It wets your appetites. And a mousse bouche. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a first for Doctor Who podcasts, I think. No one's ever called uh, <laughs> Mission to the Unknown any of those things. Okay, let's have a quick natter about some of the characters we meet. I mean, there's no, there's no ongoing development of the characters to discuss as such. I found the two leads, Corey and Larry, to be ever so good, I'll be honest, having rewatched it this time. And really, I, I think they were on a hiding to nothing. And uh, I think they both managed to convey the tension of the situation they were in. And I especially latched onto, and it's thanks to the the, the U-Clan version, really, and and how your actors dealt with it, that I really managed to latch onto what Edward D'Souza was doing. And I hadn't really noticed his line from being 007 James Bond, cold, flippant, not phased by anything, to the absolute panic in his voice when he's recording the the message so that's that's something new i found with it i mean i like the fact that they die i think that's good i think it's interesting uh it's very dramatic and if you sort of know that that's where it's heading it's quite a cruel ending to that episode it's quite bleak isn't it it is and what i find interesting is that it's closer to it's very unusual for doctor who and you really can't do that very often though wiles and tosh will have a good go at it but it's much closer to the sort of thing terry nation does outside Doctor Who. Yeah. And I'm not mm. talking about his Tony Hancock episodes. I'm talking about the su- Survivors, Blake mm. Seven, that sort of thing. He does like going to dark places. And we, we had seen in the, the end of Galaxy 4, 
just a little taster for the the, the tone of season three and that the Dravins are dispatched pretty ruthlessly without a second thought sort of thing as the Rills happily escape. And then we have this where everybody dies and then the rest of the season is a, a bloodbath as well. So I wonder if he receives some support in doing that from from wiles and tosh absolutely and you know at the risk of stretching our hypothesizing too far if there's anything what i was saying about possibly the characters in his original draft being carried forward and becoming brett vine and Mm. kurt gantry island um maybe tosh and wiles said no i know kill him off that'll surprise people Mm. because It was it was in the air at the time, wasn't it? It's a shame that there's so many program files missing from the uh, BBC written archives from around this time, because you know there's probably all these memos and interesting exchanges between these key people that would bring all this mm. to life. But you know, if you look through these files, there's very little there. There's a real sort of dearth of material from this time in the show's history. Some of the best archaeology about uh, the way scripts developed in this era has been coming from Gavin Rymill on his Terry Nation's Army videos. Yep, very good. Where yeah. he's um, looked at earlier draft of the scripts and seen <laughs> peeling back the tipex to see what character names have been changed and yeah, and which, which biro has been used to change things so he can work out who did it. It's marvellous research. Did you get yourself off to Caversham then, Andrew? I did. I did. Not for uh, not as preparation for this project, but I did for my, for my right. PhD. So it's a fascinating place. And, you know, there's a there's a very fat file in there all about um, Terry Nation and developing that commercial property in the Daleks and, you know, negotiations with the BBC. Because yeah. it's very much, I think, probably one of the first sort of commercial entities sort of to come out of a BBC TV show. Sure, so it's fascinating. Yeah. The early days of Doctor Who are covered in, you know, so much fascinating detail in those files. I've, I've never thought about it in those terms, actually. The first entity that they could merchandise out of the BBC. That's in it. That's really interesting. Well, it's definitely one of the first. It must be um, yeah. in those days. But, you know, the, they obviously saw the commercial, you know, potential in the Daleks. But obviously, therefore, mm. because the Daleks were created by Terry Nation, is that whole sort of discussion about uh, rights and, you know, how mm. they take that forward. So it's, it's fascinating. I don't think it was literally the first. That was a BBC, ex- was it the Exploitations Department, they'd call it in those days. <laughs> So the fact that it, the fact they had so little, little experience with this is borne out by the fact that they that they let Terry Nation keep the rights to the Daleks, which uh, they what never else did would they again. Have merchandise, Paul. Uh, I think there were um... Hancock tea towels. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose there would have been books and things. Hmm. What an interesting idea. Yes. Andrew, it'd be really interesting to know because you are—you know Mission to the Unknown better than any other person alive on the planet, <laughs> arguably. But what was your perception about? You—you you may be too close to it now. I don't know. You can comment either way. But what was your perception of it as a fan before you started thinking about this project? Oh, I, I really liked it. I mean, like I say, I, I like the idea that you introduce some characters and then, like, twenty minutes later, you know, they're all dead. And it ends on quite a bleak point. So I find that, you know, as a in terms of storytelling and drama and conflict, uh, which, of course, is at the heart of all good drama, I thought it works really well. I like the setting. It's a great Doctor Who setting, as you say. It's, you know, 
that jungle environment and you've got the Daleks and uh, the Varga plants. So it, I think it's it's classic 1960s Doctor Who, which is ironic in a way because it hasn't got the Doctor in it. <laughs> but it is very yeah. Doctor Who, I think, even though it is a bit... It shows how bleak it can be when the Doctor's not in it, which in a way is what Torchwood does, if you think about it. Torchwood is is Doctor Who without the Doctor's um, presence in a way and and it does push it does push it a little bit more yeah. doesn't it uh, it pushes the envelope on the violence yeah. and and so on a little bit more yep yeah for once the australian censors weren't being and <laughs> weren't being particularly squeamish were they they were right this is hardcore stuff yeah paul i i'm enjoying this i'm i used to feel the same as you tim i um, well, we've discussed this before. Sorry anybody who's <laughs> stumbled across <laughs> one of our many previous discussions of this. I'm enjoying it more every time I watch it, and I used to overlook it for all the reasons you said. And I think, I did wonder, is this just familiarity? But um, I think it's because it keeps being reborn in versions that allow me to enjoy it more. Mm. Cartoon was a nudge in the right direction, but really it is thanks to, to Andrew here and his team that I'm finally seeing it as a piece of drama, not... Uh, strange footnote in the history of Doctor Who. Uh, one thing that struck me this time, think it felt like a, it just suddenly struck me, it feels like an episode of Keys of Marinus. Not tonally, but, uh, you know, Terry Nation's very good at world building. It struck me as telling a nice little self-contained 25-minute story, and I suddenly thought, well, he's done this before. Keys of Marinus has a series of these, much to um, Raymond Kuzik's chagrin, but this could, they could, this could slip in there somewhere. It could be one of the, the worlds that he's asked to conjure up for one week only. Yeah. So it's it's, it's Terry Nation playing with strengths. I've I last time I talked about it, I was to say the least a bit lukewarm about it. Not the not the the brilliant recreation and so on. I was rather lukewarm about it, but I found myself really focusing on it and enjoying it this time. Part of it, I think, as well, is in contrast to what you just said, Paul, in that. I find some of the season one and two sci-fi a little bit naively written. And it's because of some of that world building that they attempt. You know, like Euquinuses of the fifth universe and so on. And so I don't enjoy the Daleks at the end when it all gets very confusing about <laughs> universes, galaxies... Yes. The numbers being thrown around willy-nilly. The solar system. The solar system, but numbers being thrown around willy-nilly. I think the Daleks have been empire building for 500 years by this point, yeah. and they are X light years away, which completely throws a major plot of the Daleks' master plan under the bus, but we won't talk about that now. But focusing on the drama, and thanks to really focusing on the, the visuals that we now have courtesy of Andrew and his, his colleagues. It, I really rather enjoyed the original and the recreation with that drama and with that tension of the plants closing in and them getting killed. And I really latched onto that this time. The tendency when we do these podcasts is to nitpick and enjoy things less because you're putting them under the microscope. But this is at the opposite effect. So I'm, I'm really, I've got a different perspective on it now, which is, which is good, which, is, which I'm pleased, pleased about. I like the fact that it gets increasingly desperate as it goes through. Absolutely, yeah. No, I've, I've never latched onto that before, but I really picked up on it through watching, watching your guys do it and then listening and realising 
because it does miss the visuals, doesn't it? Without just the audio. But when you listen to that desperation in the voice as he's making that recording, I thought that was really, really well done. So hats off to Terry Nation, I think, for for realising that. And it's very well constructed because it's um, it's doing clever at more things and slightly more skillfully than he would normally be called upon to do in a single 25-minute episode, a serial episode. Just from the obvious fact that it's telling one story which comes to a conclusion, but also, you know, being... We've, we've gone, gone through it all before. All the things that carry forward. Yeah. The human indeed. story, the operatic science scale of the science fiction. It's, it's a lot of going on. Is it the story that has been now... <laughs> is now, uh, ironically, available through more different... It's less missing <laughs> than any other missing story, and indeed some <laughs> non-missing stories. Because we've had the non-narrated soundtracks, we've had the narrated soundtracks, we've had a loose cannon reconstruction, we've had the brilliant Ian Levine animation, where even though we've not had it, but we've had it, everyone's <laughs> seen it. We've had the, the University of Central Lancashire version, and now now someone else has had a go at dubbing the original soundtrack over the, the U-Clan one. Have you had a listen to that, Andrew? Have you, had a, have you had a look? I have had a look very recently. I saw it originally, a bit of it on Twitter uh, quite a long time ago. A couple of scenes, I think, I saw on Twitter. And it was, yeah. it was fascinating. I mean, uh, it's as someone who likes finding ways of bringing these things back to life that don't exist anymore, uh, there's lots of different ways of doing it. And they've all got pros and cons. And, you know, yeah. people often talk about, well, can't you just use the original soundtrack and get actors to sort of like sync up to it? It just is <laughs> not like that. It's not as simple as that. Um, because human beings, you know, they have to, in the moment, kind of respond to each other and cameras mm. and editing and stuff. And it's just not that easy to get them to mouth along. I mean, you know, see singers really struggle with it. So you, um, yeah. it's just a very different beast, really, to, to do it that way. But of course, in post-production, you can tweak things to have a go at it. Uh, and of course, I mean, our actors studied, you know, and listened to the soundtrack a lot to try to recapture as much of that original sort of pacing as possible. I was struck by how well they did. There are bits in the where it's dubbed over, where obviously they've had to edit the, the 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 soundtrack a little bit to fit the visuals. But there are bits which are unedited, and they're absolutely spot on. It's brilliant. Yeah, you had already told Richard that you'd shown your cast the original. Sorry, played your cast the original soundtrack to give them tips on on the I don't know the tone of the acting, which I kind of hadn't picked up on because when I first saw this redubbed version, I was astonished by how closely it fitted. But now it makes sense that without asking them to slavishly imitate it. Because they'd been so imbued in the original, they'd picked it up naturally, hadn't yeah, they? Yeah, well, it's a balance. It's all a balance. I mean, they have to bring something of themselves to it for it to be like an authentic performance. But they are also bringing to it uh, their own sort of echo of what they've been listening to to help them prepare for the role, which is the original performances and the pacing of, yeah. you know, and the style of acting and so on. I'm interested to ask you more about this because it is such an... <laughs> an old-fashioned, de- almost dead style of acting. And I, I was, was going to ask you, how, before you played them, the soundtrack, what do you think their instincts were? Did they ever try the script before they'd heard the original? And, and did they think, this dialogue's very heightened, how do we do this? Because acting has moved on, and people nowadays expect a bit more realism in the script for them to add extra realism in the performance. And... Um, yeah, I'm just wondering if there was any tension there. In... Well, that's fascinating. I don't think so. I don't think they ever did 
I mean, I certainly not when I was present, um, have a go at how this scene would work in a more naturalistic way. But as you say, it wasn't written in that way. So if, if, a, if the words of a dialogue are not written in that naturalistic way, it's very hard to sort of make it naturalistic. You'd have to sort of take the, the, the essence of the scene and then just kind of almost improvise uh, to, to do something more sort of natural. So that it's written very much for that style of storytelling and they, they clicked into it quite easily and, and actually it's a bit more, it's more theatrical so it's a theatrical type yeah, performance I was, was going to say had, had they done much theatre yeah. I suppose it would be mostly theatre wouldn't it because yeah they're from an acting course which is a combination of like theatre and uh, screen acting so they understand the nuances of the different approaches uh, and this was definitely much closer to theatre fascinating yeah. I have mean, I've said before, but you don't get it on the audio, the original audio, at all. You sort of get Edward D'Souza's character switching from this um, James Bondy type RP character to the panicked one right at the right at the, literally the death. And I was really impressed how your guys um, acted out the growing tension with their physicality. It was really it's really what turned around my opinion of this story so absolute hats off to yourself and, and them i thought it was really good some people on the internet were very upset and offended on on behalf of you and your actors um that this redubbed version of, existed but um i mean i i think it's nice to have yet another one i think it's nice to have a, a sixth different version and it and certainly is not going to replace yours it's nice to have yet another chance yeah to view it it, it doesn't offend me because I was interested in, in it and how well it might work or not. I think you do have to do a lot of work to it to make it feel real. And being lower res and black and white it probably helps because you're not so taken by lips, lip sync <laughs> issues. But, you know, I suppose in terms of aesthetic performance, I would always err on the side where it's, it's our recreator soundtrack. But um, as an option to watch it with, a, with the original soundtrack. I, I, I understand that that would appease some fans uh, who think it's absolutely outrageous to not use the original <laughs> soundtrack. Yours is a proper piece of art, but I think the redub version rises slightly higher than a mere, a mere curiosity, which I wouldn't have expected mm. it to. And as you said, if you'd set out to do, if this had been your aim from the beginning, to, to get a troop of actors to mime to it, to the original soundtrack, it would have never worked yeah. and been a... An exercise in futility, but as an unintended side effect, it's quite an amusing thing. Well, in thing a way, to it demonstrates that we, uh, I think, were fairly successful in in recreating, not just doing our own version, but trying to recreate as authentically as possible the original. So it, it should match up fairly well, uh, if you see what I mean. And the whole the the yep. edit of the project was, you know, which I did on my laptop. You know, started with the original soundtrack on some of the. Yeah, soundtracks in the editing program layering on top the different scenes to try to as far as possible stick to the original durations of each scene right. so the overall thing is the same how do you think that helps i mean my, i'd have thought off the top of my head that um it might mean you'd hold on some things longer than you would do if you're editing it with a modern sensibility uh, yes i think that is true uh, and, and again as an editor that there's a slight conflict there in in yourself to try to you know you're trying to make something which is going to work in its own right but also the principle of, of the whole project was to was to fill a gap on the shelf in the in the archive 
so as close as we could get it with all the logistics mm. we were grappling with the better so if we could you know extend something or wait on a shot longer because that's how it was then we should and, and you know the, the one scene where we could do that entirely was the scene with the daleks in their control room because that was basically daleks talking to each other in a model set <laughs> so that scene is you know beat for beat the same even though it means that there's a few shots where you think you would naturally cut slightly sooner but uh, didn't because it's supposed to be the same <laughs> pace as the original yep Clive Doyle gap in the vision mixing box, or whoever it was by then. <laughs> you have to try and put yourself in their mindset. Can I pick up on a point that you you raised on the on on Richard's fantastic interview? And I don't want you to go through every line of your PhD, <laughs> but I found it utterly fascinating the concepts of your PhD that using sixties production methods removes shackles of modern production methods in storytelling could you explain that for me i find it fascinating well in a way if if you're trying to tell a story stories are about uh, people it's about you know human nature tv is really about the face so it's about close-ups and seeing actors and reactions to events and yeah. so if you can tell any story you want um in a in a tv recording studio uh, focusing on the face because that's what stories are all about. Then um, that that plays really well to the 1960s way of making TV. You know, if you want cobbles, if you want to shoot yeah. a cobble street, you just paint a rough cobble pattern like they did in An Unearthly Child on the floor. But nowadays, you'd have to go on location and find a cobble street, um, <laughs> and all the expense and the cost of shooting on location with generators and controlling the weather and lighting and all that. Um, but mm. you know, nighttime on a cobble street in 1963 was basically uh, a black drape, a light, and a bit of paint on the floor, and it works. But nowadays, it's a night shoot, yeah, which is expensive sure. uh, on location. And and you have a, you have more faith in your audience back then, I well, suppose, then that you they, that you have you have faith in their ability to suspend their disbelief and and forgive uh, production values and to be able to imagine what's going on. I think if world. you're if you have at the heart of it an authentic performance and it's about the story, then I think the audience will forgive that sort of thing. But to, but to be fair, you know, yeah. when they go into that junkyard in 1963, well, it looks like a junkyard in 1963. It doesn't look like a studio set, yeah. does it? I don't think it does. Yeah. I think it looks good. No, it doesn't. No, prehistoric no. <laughs> Earth looks like prehistoric, you know, whatever it's, you know, and. We can make a direct comparison there because when they revisit that junkyard in Remembrance of the Daleks and Attack of the Cybermen, it never looks anywhere near as impactful no. as it does. That's true. First That's very there. true. Yeah. That's why a lot of film buffs still prefer the early days of cinema with studio sets because you could control absolutely everything. You didn't just have to rely on your framing of the natural world. You could start framing things when, as you're building the set and painting the Painting the scenery in the yeah. back. And when you can't do it that way, then you have the actors looking beyond the camera, which I, I love that. I love that <laughs> approach, so that, you know, breaking the fourth wall. You know, that's part of that whole sort of like acting style, which we are talking about earlier, where, you know, Mark Corey would stand on his, what we called the mood spot next to the camera, staring moodily past the camera at like Varga plants <laughs> or Daleks or there's something out there or spaceships or whatever. And it, it's really, it works because you don't need to see it all the time. 
you just see the reaction in the face. I meant to ask about that uh, on a very practical point. In does when the when the the delegate ship arrives, and you have your two actors staring off at the distance and putting their hands up to their faces to protect from the glare, was that as it was in the original? Do we know, or did they have a model shot of a spaceship landing? I don't know. Paul will say, because Paul was taking a deep breath there. I don't know. It wasn't actually clear from the script, I don't think, if I think about it, that right. they had a model shot. I was just going to say my instinct would be that they might have had, if they had had a model shot, it would have been cut from one to the other. You very rarely got a split screen effect, did oh, you? No, I it mean, would, it would have, they did yeah. one in... It, they would have, um, they would have, it would so, have been like in, in the Dalek Invasion of Earth, I guess, when they stand in the ruins. It would have been like that if they, if they had one at all. I don't know. Sure. Sorry, I know that's slightly besides the point, but it did it did it did occur to me to ask about whether there would have been a, a model shot in there. I don't suppose you got a chance to talk to uh, Peter Purvis or Edward D'Souza about um, any of these these points to sit to ask them if it reminded them of the way TV was made. Oh back yeah, in the I mean, day. I had lots of conversations with them about it. I mean, Edward D'Souza walked he walked into into our set, and he said it just took him right back. I mean, he hasn't to him it was like one week's work you know, an awful long time ago. Um, but he said when he walked onto that set, it was just like being there back in the day and all his memories came back, which, which is lovely. That's wonderful. Yeah, Lovely. And, of course, Peter Purvis is quite a, a buff on television production techniques himself, isn't he? He's always taken interest in the behind-the-camera side Absolutely. Of yeah, no, he was... He was um, very interested in how we were approaching it and he thought it, we were doing it in, in, in an authentic way but I think a lot of people would, who were involved in production back then would believe that in a sense we have lost something by moving away from that style of production you know huge amounts of drama was churned out storytelling you know uh, whereas now well Doctor Who is the classic example you know it, it's now taken them like you know two years to turn out uh, not many episodes compared to mm. what they were doing because they have to spend so much longer doing it because of the high definition and location filming and increased audience expectations, of course, as well. It's very true. I, I had the misfortune of listening to um, a podcast about iClaudius, which is absolutely... <laughs> well, you know, it's one of the greatest TV dramas of all time. And the first thing that these commentators said on each episode was to knock the production values knock the makeup knock the the sets and all that sort of thing which i thought was quite a sad a sad statement on audience expectation yeah. to be honest well in those first few weeks of doctor like i always say the first few weeks of doctor who's production you know they went from like present day london to you know 100,000 bc or whatever it was and then they went to like you know um <laughs> A petrified forest on an alien world and a, a metal city, yeah. jungles, swamps, you know, all within that little tiny TV studio. Whereas when they brought back Doctor Who in 2005, <laughs> uh, it was very earthbound because, uh, I, I, you know, of a number of factors, there's budget, there's increased expectations, but they, all, they also had to try to demonstrate their ability to do proper science fiction that wasn't going to be laughed at which they did in the second episode but again it's very internalized it's in it's inside it took a long time for them yeah. to go outside on an alien world because as soon as doctor who left that little tiny recording studio in the 1960s 
all their alien worlds tended to be uh, quarries, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You're not the first no, person to observe that. No. <laughs> and it works to a point. And actually, even when Doctor Who came back for the new series, they you know, they did also go to quarries, but they filmed them at night because yeah. they had a bigger budget so they could make it a little more interesting by filming at night. And the latest innovation is just to um, record in exotic foreign countries that look a bit like quarries. <laughs> yes. But slightly less like quarries than, <laughs> than before. So, it's, you know. Yeah, Lanzarote. <laughs> it's, yes. It's very slow progress. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's brilliant. <laughs> Do you have any reflections now on it with nine months perspective of the publicity side of things and the launch and so on? Yeah, I mean, uh, I was, you know, as you know, I was very involved in it and uh, it meant an awful lot to me. And um, it was a great way of bonding a lot of staff and students. And so from that perspective, as a sort of student experience type project, I think it was very successful. And I was very pleased that the BBC supported it and the, the fan community you know on the main embraced it and there's little bits and pieces i would change of course if i was going to do it again i personally had very low expectations of it my attitude beforehand was sort of well fair enough but i was absolutely blown away as you, as you watched it you know it completely surpassed uh, what expectations well, uh, i have uh, we were we really sort of um i guess challenged ourselves to do it as good as we possibly could it was it was a very it was a challenging production to do particularly as it you know it's yeah. not something which we're doing full time you know i was doing that alongside everything else yeah. as were the other students and staff so it was quite a big endeavor to pull it over the line i think everyone was very happy with what we produced and in a way maybe it's quite helpful that we made it we finished it and then a few months elapsed before it's shown so that probably helps a bit as well having a bit of a of a gap yeah, in there sure. Uh, but I was really pleased it was shown because in a way that's a nice kind of conclusion to the project and it, it means that people can write about it on their CVs. You know, at the end of the day, it's about, you know, student employability and, you know, they can point to something which is still there on the YouTube site and say, yeah, we did that. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks very much for that, Andrew. Fascinating perspectives. It's come to that moment where we talk about the missing episodes aspects and whether we can sort of work out any sort of likelihood of or hope of seeing it again and, and so on. Do you follow the missing episodes aspects of things very much? Do you have a copy wiped on the shelf? Uh, well, I do follow it to a point. I find it fascinating and I'd love for these things to be to be found. Um, and they have been found in all sorts of weird and wonderful locations, haven't they? So always keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> Indeed. So over the last few stories, I've been charting the steady decline in sales of um, Doctor Who to foreign parts. It's a precipitous decline this week because <laughs> Mission to the Unknown was not sold anywhere. But that wasn't for want of trying. Um, there are several things that got in the way. But the main thing that stopped it being sold more widely was that Terry Nation withdrew the rights for the BBC to sell Dalek stories. That was at the end of 1966, because of course all the foreign sales were were lagging slightly behind mm. the original broadcasts. For example, uh, 
Barbados and Zambia would have been in a position to buy this story, but it was during the window when they couldn't buy any Dalek cereal, so that that's, rules them out. By the time the moratorium on Dalek sales was lifted a year after that, at the end of 67, New Zealand and Sierra Leone might have been in a position to show Mission to the Unknown, but they didn't. And from that, to work out why they didn't, we have to go back to something uh, we discussed with John Prattle a while back, which is the, just to put it very simply, the fact that the BBC would have to sell to a major uh, country first. They would basically, essentially, they would have to sell to Australia before they could sell to any smaller Commonwealth countries. So fundamentally, the problem is that Australia did not buy the story because I think, as we touched on, they thought it was just far too horrific. They'd had problems beforehand. Hmm. But I think uh, it was rejected outright due to its horror content uh, when it was re- reviewed by the Australian censors in September 1966. In, in its own right, or as part of the... Uh, this is a complicated way of saying it. The What would have been the 13-parter less <laughs> Feast of Stephen. Interesting um, question. It's horror content. Interesting question. They were... They were offered a block of stories, Galaxy 4, Mythmakers, Mission and Dalek's Master Plan in March 1966. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether they would have considered showing this. I think this was rejected and Dalek's Master Plan was rejected. So it sticks to one and half a dozen of the other. What, what a shame they didn't buy it, edit bits out of it, and then we could have found the, uh, the film trims. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, because of course it would have been all the best bits, wouldn't it? <laughs> Not to sound too um, bloodthirsty. So, I mean, yes, this is the fate of this story is tied up with Dalek's master plan, and there's but there's plenty more to say on that subject, which we'll be getting to fairly soon, oh, won't we? So, um, indeed, Bond stores. <laughs> Bond stores. <laughs> Bonsalls are not something I'd ever heard of before, like uh, like Kaduna and Joss and. Bond stores. <laughs> I've learned so many arcane terms in the missing episode world. Indeed. So we don't know what happened to it. The print would probably have been returned from the ABC back to the BBC Sydney office, but um, much with master plan. It's whereabouts after that are a continuing mystery. There's another possibility, another interesting possibility. Ooh. We haven't really discussed Singapore yet, and... Um, the risk of getting this all completely out of order. We will be coming on to Singapore in relation to season three as a whole later. Don't worry, fact fans. <laughs> but in relation to this story in particular, there's no evidence that Singapore did buy and show Mission to the Unknown, but it is a possibility because if researchers such as the estimable John Preddle have, um, have looked at the number of weeks in which Doctor Who was broadcast in uh. Singapore, and there is a gap. If you count the number of weeks... There is a gap, which means it could have been shown in the, in its correct slot between Galaxy Four and Mythmakers. A, a one episode gap. Yes, which it would have to be, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah it's not a zero episode gap or a two episode gap. It is a one episode gap <laughs> as as required. But there is no evidence. Um, the lack of evidence for the sale itself mm. isn't conclusive. But there's no evidence for even if, of payments. Um, John particularly picked flags up the fact that you would need clearance for the stock music. There's no evidence that any, that the stock music was paid for this so who knows that's another less less important because the the singapore prints are um scattered to the four winds aren't they oh no i'm getting ahead of myself now (laughs) (laughs) that may well prove to be the case when we come on to that listeners i don't suppose we need worry about the the sense of the storytelling because some 
you know, having a Mission to the Unknown show and not having Dalek's Master Plan because some broadcasters didn't give a, a hoot about it. No. Indeed, indeed, in Singapore, it was shown wildly out of order, wasn't it? Do we have any information about what the audiences were like in the 60s and the 70s when they were showing these Doctor Who episodes overseas? You know, were they well watched? Do you know what? Do you know what? I have no idea and I would love to know that. I would like to know who these people were. I'd love to know what the context you know, was, was for it. What was, was there someone there taking <laughs> photographs of the of the television screen? You know, like <laughs> there were over here. You know, because there. Are... Just today, John Preddle has um, has updated his research on Nigeria, and he's reminded us that it was considered quite a hit Doctor Who in Nigeria in the late sixties. Mm. So, and there's, there's a link to a a Nigerian forum where it's all related to the recovery of Enemy and Web. And this was from 2013, but there are a lot of very fond reminiscences of the earlier, much earlier showings of Tom Baker stuff, for instance. And it it was a hit. Well, the 60s ones, I guess, I, I guess at that point they was they were they dubbed them, didn't they? Uh, they dubbed them into the foreign languages. Yes. Yeah, when necessary. Right. Mm. So that's a different avenue to explore. Uh, I'm sure it has been explored about you know who who were the actors were who did the the d- redubbing um because if it got to that mm. point we might know whether it is more likely broadcast or not mm. and just to bring things to a conclusion the um despite not having sold for a variety of reasons mission to the unknown was still available for sale until 1974 at the very latest bizarre that isn't it the um bbc mm. enterprises summary from that year suggests that Mission, Galaxy 4 and the War Machines were still available for sale. They were the only three season three stories that were. So all a bit random. I mean, it's very odd to be... It seems odd to be selling, to be offering Mission when you're not offering Dalek's Master Plan, but I, they just wanted... They just seemed to wanted a little bit of money, didn't they? Anything that they could they could squeeze out of these Well, these without offerings. recourse to facts, because it's not something I like to do, that sort of puts a, a more positive light on Singapore again, doesn't it? Because they were showing stuff out in any old order. If they were desperate to get whatever they could, anyway, it's such a it's such a muddle. This, but um, even though it was available for sale, in theory, they would whoever bought it would have had to pay the full premium price, the Australian price, which is probably why Nigeria didn't go for it. Yeah, because mm. the ones they did buy late in '74, they got um, bargain price because the quota had already been covered, hadn't it? But as they've waited for so long, they can now watch the excellent University of Central Lancashire reproduction for free. How wonderful to be able to end on a happy note for a change. <laughs> for free, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Goodness me. <laughs> How often can you say that in this, in this avarice as well? Yes. So that concludes our review of, of Mission to the Unknown. Andrew Island, thank you so much for for joining us. I think that was I think you provided some absolutely fascinating insights there. So, so thanks so much. Thank you to you as well, I suppose. I enjoy talking about Mission to Unknown more every time I talk about it. Though having said <laughs> that, let let this be the last. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners. We've had a tremendous amount of support in especially recent weeks, but since we began this project, and it means a great deal. You can find me on Twitter 
at Doctor Who Podcasters with a DR. Paul is at Mr. Paul Morris. We also have a Facebook page by the name of Doctor Who and the Podcasters. So do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, we'll be back very soon to talk about the Myth Makers. Bye! Thank you.